Welcome to the Flaps Podcast. Hello, I'm Elliot. And I'm Mark. Welcome to the November Flaps Podcast. Late, overweight and with a dodgy undercarriage. Late, overweight and with a dodgy undercarriage? What, you mean the new Boeing Dreamliner? No, 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 no. I, mean, I mean us, the Flaps Dream Team. Oh, right. Well, in this edition of the podcast, we speak to Frederick Forsyth. Oh, brilliant. I love Strictly Come Dancing. Oh, right, my love. Hey, what are you on about? Forsyth. Strictly Come Dancing. No, Elliot, no, it's not Bruce Forsyth. It's Frederick Forsyth. Well, he's got a brother and we've got both of them. Because you get nothing for a pair, not in this game. No, Elliot, he's an author. He writes books. Oh, right, OK. Most famously, Day of the Jackal, ah, yes. which is 40 years old this year. You should have heard of it, really. Day of the Jackal. God, it's like Day of the Jackass in here. Thanks. I, I, once, I once saw the foolish who went between two towers of a, of a power generating station. Uh, as well as that, we'll catch up with pet PPL Carl. He's got not one, not two, but three big news items for us. Pablo Mason's finally run out of gas. Uh, was I willing to land on a runway with a big piece of fod on it? Not at night, I wasn't. Mark visits Northweald Airfield. All oh, that rhymes. That's good, that. Northweald Airfield. In a plane. Are you insane? In the sun. Was it fun? No, Elliot, but on the way back, we stopped at the local. The crown and anchor. You complete. Anyway, uh, we also look ahead to file a flight plan day. Remember, remember the 12th of November. Oh, don't you start rhyming stuff now. Celebrity Pilot. It's 40 years since the world-famous novel The Day of the Jackal was first published. Its multi-million selling author is Frederick Forsyth, who was one of the RAF's youngest pilots aged just 19. After national service, he became a journalist and went on to write his first novel, The Day of the Jackal, in 1971. Hello to you. And, and thank you for having us in your lovely houses. And, and thanks for the hospitality so far. Okay. People may not know that you were something of an aviator and a, a pretty good one back in the day. Well, it's about, I don't know about quality. Um, yes, I, I did fly for the Air Force, um, but a long time ago, 50 years ago, in the days when we had to do a thing called National Service. It was long, long abandoned, but we did then. And I was one of the very few who actually wanted to do National Service. Everybody else was trying to get out of it. I wanted to, to uh, go into national service because I was absolutely obsessed with flying. And, uh, and was it always a given that you'd be a flyer, or did no, you have to oh, do no, tests? No, no. Or uh, thousand to one, roughly, yeah. was the odds. Um, first, you had to go to um, a place called RAF Hornchurch, where they gave you a, what well, was a five-day residential uh, uh, examination. It was every kind of examination. It was a two days, uh, roughly, of medica- a medical exam, which was top to toe. I mean, every single part of your body. And um, I, I do recall that a lot of the guys who turned up thinking that they were going to become pilots or navigators um, were actually just sent home with um, flaws that they didn't know they had, like slighted, even slightly defective vision would do the trick, or slightly defective hearing, or yeah. two days of that. And then uh, sort of uh, aptitude tests followed by initiative tests, then the fifth day of the interviews. Uh, and then you were sent back home again, um, and you waited and waited. And in my case, fortunately, the little buff envelope arrived saying you've passed. Report to RAF Cardington. What did you? Um, what did you learn well, to fly? It started with three months um, cadet camp, and then you got the thinnest ring you've ever seen on your on your wrist, meaning you're an acting pilot officer. And then you went to base uh, basic flying school, which in in my case was um, a plane called the Provost. Uh, the, the hunting festival provost, not the jet provost, the piston provost. 
nine months of that, um, followed by nine months uh, of jet. And the jets was what we all lusted for and to do, and they were um, vampires. And were you one of the youngest airmen in the RAF, uh, Freddie? I was the youngest, actually, to get the wings, uh, because just a long and complicated story, which I won't go into now, but I wangled my way into the Air Force too young. I, I got in at 17 and a half, because I, I just didn't want to wait anymore. But technically speaking, I shouldn't have been in until I was 18. So, okay, I got my wings at 19 and a half, where everyone else was 20, or plus, 20 plus. And it was, it was de- reckoned to be impossible to get them uh, under the age of 20. But because I had the six-month advantage, I got one at 19 and a half. I, I was told later that's never been done. Did you enjoy flying? Yep, absolutely. Loved every minute of it. I'm, I'm both piston and jet. But I mean, you know, the, it, one, we, we had two guys um, who were killed. Um, and that's a rather, it was a bit of a wake-up call, we mm. realised. Then we were all sort of, you know, by then, 18, 19, we realised that uh, these vampires weren't just a toy that a very kind queen had given us to drive around and <laughs> have some fun with. They were actually rather serious bits of metal, and they would kill you if you didn't take them with some respect. So I think we grew up a little bit when we buried those two mates. Do yeah. you um, do you remember? I mean, everyone remembers their first solo. What was yours like? Yeah, uh, I do remember very well. It was at Workshop, Nottinghamshire, which was where we were based. And, uh, yeah, we obviously we had the twin-seat um, T-11 um, vampire, and that was the, the, the first because the, 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 the instructor just simply got out and, uh, and, and looked back in and just said, well, you know. <laughs> they still do that now. Yeah, you're, you're, you're on your own. And, <laughs> yeah, uh, they all do that still. Jumped, jumped off the wing onto the ground and, and you, you pulled the canopy down and um, waited until he was well, well clear and then eased the controls forward and um, began to taxi back to, the, back to takeoff point. Um, and then you, you obviously checked in with, with uh, the tower and asked for permission to take off, permission granted, um, line the nose up and then think, oh, Christ, <laughs> I really, there's no, no one here but me. <laughs> yeah. It's funny, everyone has the same story. Everyone it, it tells is. pretty much the same story about the first solo. But was it, was it okay? Was it uneventful? Yeah, absolutely. Straight, straight down, the, down the runway, uh, down the centre line, uh, wait till you know, take off speed, lift the nose, and up she went. Um, standard circuit, you know, left wing, left wing, left wing again come back on the final approach, uh, all the checks and balances and uh, check three greens and, you know, your undercarriages down and uh, and land the blasted thing. And was and, the uh, rule same in, in your day as it was in ours? You have to go and buy the drinks in the pub? No, no, because would, uh, <laughs> there would have been too many of us. <laughs> we would have got very plastered if we all bought around. And I don't, also don't think we didn't have the money. I think the pay was uh, about £21 a week. Uh, which was, I mean, considered very substantial in those days. But there was a bar bill to pay and a mess bill to pay. So, what was what was your most uh, hair raising moment? Oh Lord, um, I, I once I once rather foolishly went between two towers of a, of a power generating station. Um, you know those big cooler cooler towers, yeah, yeah, yeah. and um, I just looked down at them. I thought, yeah, I wonder what the gap gap between them is <laughs> wide enough. Unfortunately, it was. It's about so. 50 feet or 80 feet wide, and we had a, 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 a 21 foot wingspan, something. So she went through quite quite neatly, but it was seriously illegal. And um, <laughs> I just, when I did, I just hoped nobody had noted the number on the on the tail. Do you fly now? Did you carry it on at all as a civilian? No, no I had a I had a, a private pilot's license before I went in the Air, the Air Force. 
I got that off Flying Tiger Moths. And um, then I, the, in the Air Force, uh, that, that obviously superseded. When I came out, I still had the PPL. Then I became a cub reporter in Norfolk. Uh, salary about three, I mean, amazing, three pounds a week. Um, I couldn't even subsist on it. My parents had to sub me a bit. But certainly a flying uh, was, was about three pounds an hour. Mm. Even then, I was about 35 or 40 pounds an hour, maybe more. But then three pounds an hour was out of the question. Um, so it lapsed. Then I went abroad. I was away for nearly 10 years. Um, then when I came back, the question was, if you want it back, um, you know, you're going to have to go through the whole, the whole flying intuition again, mm. uh, flying tuition again. And the exams. And all the exams yeah. and all the tests and um, all the radio stuff. I wanted to fly Tigers, but um, which have no radio, of course. But then you had to do all the, all the radio um, tests and, and procedures and so on. And I thought, well, it's a bit of a, bit of a bind. Um, so I never did. Do you miss it? Now and again, I look up at a clear blue sky and see a flying uh, guy going across it um, and think, yeah, I wish I was up there with him. But uh, the only time I was tempted was when, in the, when, when uh, I got you know, some, some money um, because of the books, and it became, became the, the day of the, the um, microlights. Microlights were introduced. Um, and I looked up, <laughs> I saw one of these incredibly tiny little things going overhead. And I said to, to my, my wife, God, I'd love one of those. She said, right, you fly one of those. I'm going straight to see a solicitor. <laughs> I thought it was going to be that bad, is it? Yes, it is. Right. Yeah. So you're grounded, Freddie. Grounded, yeah. So you ended up leaving the RAF and going to become a reporter. And you yeah. you, you reported on conflicts, didn't you? You ended up in uh, reporting the Biafra yes, conflict. Yes, that was, that was the end of, uh, I mean, I was, I was 12 years, 19 to 31. Uh, no, the age of 19 to 31. Um, I went in. At nine, I went in at nineteen, having come out of the air force, um, to a provincial newspaper in mm. Norfolk. Did my three-year apprenticeship, then went to London, got a job with Reuters. Uh, spent four years with Reuters, then switched from Reuters to the BBC. Uh, did two and a half years with them, and then left them. Um, uh, resigned, in fact, <laughs> under something of a cloud, uh, and went off and became a freelance for two years. Christmas '69. I was I was actually skint, very once, very skint indeed, and so I thought I'd better do something. I sat down and wrote the day of the jackal. So that sort of changed things. <laughs> I can imagine as it as it would. Did, did you did you ever think when you wrote that book that it would lead where it did? No, no. It was, I, first of all, I thought it would probably be a one-off. I didn't think I was going to be I mean, a career novelist. I mm. thought I'd just do one. Um, I was so naive about publishing and the way things work in publishing, that I thought that you sold a manuscript as you sold a dozen eggs or something for a single sum. I didn't know about royalties. And I just needed something to sell to um, pay off my debts, put something in the bank, and then I wanted to go back to um, foreign correspondent. I think, Freddie, I'm right in saying you speak French, don't you? Yeah, I, I learned French before I went to France, when I was a schoolboy, and German and Spanish. Well, you speak, speak lots of languages. You've written about spies, assassins and security services. Got a military background A military as well. background, yeah. yes. Were you ever approached to work for MI5 or MI6? No. The, um, it's obviously, forgive my saying, I've been asked before for obvious reasons because I was behind the Iron <laughs> Curtain a fair amount of the time. Uh, but basically, the, um, you know, the, the point about being a foreign correspondent, particularly in a dictatorship like East Germany, where I was supposed to be, is you're continually under surveillance. Uh, which makes you completely useless in that role because 
Uh, obviously, the, the whole point of the agent, he's supposed to pass unnoticed. So, so not a spy. Unless, of course, he's not telling us. And maybe maybe you are a spy. Maybe even now you're a spy. But this is a double bluff, well, Freddie. I'm only, I, all I could be spying on <laughs> is, is the High Wycombe uh, Borough Council. <laughs> <laughs> well, they've got secrets. They've got yeah, secrets. Yeah. Uh, so you weren't, a, you weren't a spy, but you were a bullfighter, weren't you? No. That's, oh, okay. That's another, <laughs> that's another canard. I don't know where it came from. Well, anyway, it came from, it came from exaggeration. So that's one lie we can we can lay to rest. You were never a bullfighter. No. And never a spy. He can't no. tell us. <laughs> I can deny. I can deny everything. We're going to leave here going, you know what? He was a spy, he was a spy and, and he was, was a bullfighter. Bull yeah, yeah. Um, this is obviously uh, for an aviation podcast, so we need to talk about... I mean, you've written many great books, many, many great books, but our favourite story is, of course, The Shepherd. The Shepherd, yeah. Because it's all about the guy flying the vampire home yeah. on Christmas Eve. Yeah. Um, it's a great story. It's a funny story, and well, funny, odd, funny, peculiar, because uh, it it only, only sort of stemmed from my wife, my then-wife... Um, saying to me, as a sort of, sort of challenge, um, write me a ghost story. And the idea wasn't that it would be an aviation story, but it would, the challenge was to write a ghost. Without a, I'd never done a ghost. I'd done three books by then, but I'd never done a ghost story. And um, so I thought, well, what ghost, ghost, ghost. You know, you think manor houses, clanking chains, um, guys walking around with no head or something, with a head <laughs> under their arm or something, all medieval. Um, but I thought, no, let's try and, and, and devise something more modern. What about the pilot who a pilot who comes back from the dead to fly again? And hasn't the shepherd got a, a, a very famous fan as well? A chap who obviously we've all seen, I think, on screen is called John Travolta. It has another half to his life, which is that he is a passionate pilot. Mm. Um, he, so being rich enough, he. I think he has his own jumbo or something, his own Boeing anyway. He lives, doesn't he live on a, an airstrip? He's got, he basically he, parks he his, has his, a runway his right jet out, in his garage. Yeah, There's a runway right outside his house, <laughs> yeah. So you've just done The Cobra, that was that was your last book. Um, are you working on a new one or are you, are you no. taking time off at the moment? No, I, well, norm, normally when I've just launched a book, I, I give myself a year off. I said, I'm not a compulsive writer. So basically just mulling over in my head, possible, possible very possible, vague Ideas, one or two, that might be the theme. Might be the theme of the next book, but nothing decided yet. And what about a couple of characters? One, one guy with red hair, one terribly handsome <laughs> chap who, you know, have, have an aviation <laughs> podcast. Maybe you could weave that into somewhere. <laughs> um, well, yes, that might even possible. leading character Elliot. Good name, good strong name. You know, <laughs> villain Mark. That'd be a good name. You'd have those, Freddie. Okay, well, we'll see what we can do. I can't, I can't honestly see about you know, two guys with microphones. With Elliot's eyebrows, you could write a book called Day of the Squirrel or something. <laughs> Listen, Freddie, it's fantastic. Thank you ever so much for talking to us. Okay. And thank you for having us uh, in your home. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure to meet you and uh, hearing all your stories. Thank you very much. Our uh, celebrity pilot this month, Frederick Forsyth. It's Pet PPL. Flaps. Right, it's time to catch up with Pet PPL, our resident student pilot. He's making the mistakes that we still are, but at least he's got an excuse. Yes, uh, we've not spoken to him for several months, but that's because he's had quite a lot going on. Uh, the last time we chatted to him, he was eight months pregnant. Now, I'm no expert, but something must have happened by now, so let's go and find out. He's on the phone. Hi, Carl. Hi, chaps. You right? Yeah, we're very good. Thank you very much. Hey, it's been a little while, hasn't it? It certainly has, yeah. What do you know? Not 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 much has happened, does it? Really, in the in the little while since we've spoken to you. 
not 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 too much really. Mm. You've got three big bits of news, haven't you? Three big, big bits of news. The, okay. fir- the first big bit of news since we last spoke several podcasts ago. Uh, I was flying into Welshpool one Sunday, and uh. as we were parking up, I looked out the uh, at the passenger window, and I saw there. I saw a man. That I thought that looks like Carl Pet PPL. Yeah. And I couldn't believe it. I leapt out of the aircraft, and it was you. You were stood with a frown on your face in Welshpool. What was going on, Carl? Yeah, I didn't think I'd get away with this one, actually. Um, <laughs> See, we, we've got spies everywhere. We're following you. <laughs> so, so, so basically, I'd flown out to Welshpool on a solo nav to try and um, sort of bump my hours up. Yeah. And, uh, you know, very uneventful flight. Landed at Welshpool, had a cup of tea. Um, tried to start the plane up again. Wouldn't seem to start. Um the next thing I know, uh, there's a chap who comes running over with a fire extinguisher mouthing something <laughs> that looks a, a lot like, get out the plane. <laughs> uh, so needless to say, I kind of a very, very hurried glance at the uh, engine fire on the ground checklist. Or actually, probably I didn't bother. I just jumped Sod out the plane. the checklist on the plane. <laughs> I just got out of the plane. And, uh, well, I think what, what had happened is on start, um, that is, there'd been some fuel in the carburetor that that caught fire and it had you been over priming Carl well I, yeah I, I hadn't primed it at all I had a chat with the engineers afterwards and they said some, some, sometimes this just happens but uh, you hadn't given it four squirts when two would do <laughs> I hadn't given it any squirts but <laughs> Which brings us on to our other news in a no, minute. In a minute, in a minute. But then, yeah, obviously, uh, Mark then t- t- turned up and kept me company for about an hour and a half. <laughs> you mean took the mickey? Well, uh, yeah, exactly. And That's just what you need, isn't it? Your, en- your engine's on fire and the, then he turns the up. The timing was impeccable. Yeah. In case your wife's listening and is concerned, I was I was stood there concerned for you. There was solidarity <laughs> between pilots, yeah, Carl. But you know what the best thing was? They, they flew the engineer out from the flying school. He looked over the plane... Um, the only thing that needed to be changed, uh, you know, to be done to it was uh, it needed a new air filter in because, uh, you know, it got a bit singed. But then they said to me, do you want to fly back? And <laughs> and, and I thought, well, to hell with it. You know, let's, let, let, you know, let's sort of get back on the horse. That's very back. That's, 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 that's brave, actually that. a true pilot. That's and, good. And, and, and you know what? That was the best landing I've done today. Very good. good, lad. So there's something about adrenaline. <laughs> <laughs> so, so big bit of news number one. You set fire to your plane on a solo yep. nav. Okay, big bit of news number two. Uh, which order do you want it in? Well, oh. no, 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 this will be very telling what you think is more important. So, <laughs> uh, well, so we'll is. leave it up to you. What's your next big bit of news? Uh, in that case, the next big bit of news is I had a little daughter. Hey! Oh, my wife had a little daughter. Um, so I had to put her flying on hold for a few months. My wife um, in July um, had a little uh, a little girl, Beth. Uh, so as I say, the, the flying was on hold for a while. Um, but I have to say, there might have been a little press, bit of pressure <laughs> from my wife. <laughs> there was. <laughs> no, that's great. And how are you finding it? Are you enjoying it all? Yeah, it's absolutely great. Have you had much sleep? Actually. Not too bad at all. Um, uh, she's been a quite good sleeper so far, touch wood. So, 
Um, so it's not been, it's not been too bad, but it, it you know it is a big change in you in, in you know in your life in terms well, of how much can, time you've you, got free. I can see your figure from here, Carl. It's falling <laughs> apart. You're ruined, man. You're ruined. Well, I, th- I think it's I think it's a bit of a you know one of those sympathy weight gain things. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that, that's a good excuse. Have you um, have you taken uh, baby Beth flying yet, Carl? Has she got a pair of small David Clarks? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I don't. I don't think I'll be allowed just yet. But uh, I, I must admit, having a sneaky look on eBay for for a pair. The other day. <laughs> Brilliant. So obviously, we, we just said to you, order your big announcements in in the you know the order of importance. Mm. Uh, baby comes second. Nice. So your so <laughs> your <laughs> so your biggest news is yeah. And so um, I suppose I, I put them in chronological order. Yeah. No. Well, no yeah. No wriggling out of it now. So um, the final uh, the final announcement is uh, a couple of weeks ago I successfully passed my PPL skills test. Hey, well done, well done. Well done. So you're you're now a fully fledged pilot. Yes, absolutely. Just just waiting for the papers to come back at the moment. And uh, where are you going to take us? Uh, Welsh pill. <laughs> I'll bring the fire extinguisher. <laughs> now that's fantastic. So uh, I mean, presuming you know, with new baby, you've probably not done an awful lot of flying since you've passed. No, uh, absolutely not. I mean, I kind of put it on hold um, for a few months, so then and then I had to get back into it and mm. just absolutely blitz the last uh, sort of few weeks. Took a bit of time off, off work. How was it? How was your skills test? Did you muck anything up, or were you okay? Actually, not not too bad. I mean, it was it was a pretty windy day, so the, some of the circuits weren't 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 brilliant, but they were you know they were okay, and the the. Um, Practice the so um, engine failure was a was a bit hairy because you think well, I'm, I'm just totally going to muck up the glide on this, but I think I just about got in the field and uh, and uh, the whole thing was actually a lot better than I was expecting it was going to be. It's not quite as scary as it seems, is it? No. Well, mate, we uh, we'd like to say we'd had a wit round, but we we tried to buy you uh, a, like a baby seat for a Cessna 152, but we couldn't <laughs> find one, and so so you just have to have our love and our respect instead. <laughs> That's that's very generous. Okay, no problem. And if there's any help, it gets to be more fun from now on. Right. If, of course, you yeah. manage to ever get up there again before you lapse. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but don't let that happen. Many, many hours of happy flying, and it's been great to follow your journey. Thanks, Carl. Flaps in the air everywhere. It's time for the Big Flaps giveaway. Last edition, we said we'd give a couple of copies away of Manuel Kairos's book, Chasing the Morning Sun. It's a great read. Thank you to Manuel and to Grub Street Publishing for giving them to us. Sadly, they're not signed copies, though. Oh, yes, they are. I've just signed them. Elliot, they're supposed to be signed by the author. Are they? Oh, you didn't tell me that. Oh, it's fine. I've got, I've got some tip It's not a problem. You've just devalued them. Thank so you. So we've picked a couple of winners at random, uh, one following us on Twitter and one liking us on Facebook. So uh, let's go to the phones and say hello to our first lucky winner. Hello, Steve Lupson. Hello. Uh, congratulations, by the way. Let's give me a little round of applause. Well, hello, Steve. Steve. There we are. It's only a very small round of applause. We don't have much budget, I'm afraid. Where do you fly from, Steve? Uh, o- Oxy Park near um, Malmesbury. What's your usual aircraft of choice? It's a Robin DR250 tail dragger. Very Oh, tail dragger. Oh, yeah. We had a tail dragger well, before, have we? Our first tail dragger on flaps. <laughs> are, they, are they harder to fly? No. No. Not really. Don't you uh, get ground loops and scary things like that? The DR250 is pretty gentle, to be honest. You don't have to be too careful with it, but um, it, it's good fun landing it in a in a crosswind. You, you've got to keep your feet busy. <laughs> right, so, so you're a bit of a dancer as well, Steve. Yeah. <laughs> um, have you, obviously, you know, you, you, you've, you've won this book, which is fantastic. Um, do you think it would inspire you to go around the world? What's the furthest you've flown, Steve? Um, furthest I've been so far is France, but um, 
uh, I've got plans to go a bit further in the future. We could be giving your book away in a couple yeah. of months' time. Yeah, well, we'll have to wait and see. <laughs> <laughs> well, enjoy. It's a cracking read. There's some brilliant pictures in there. And um, you're, did you listen to the extended version of his interview? I did, yes. So you know all about his uh, his special attachment on the aircraft. Oh, yeah. The, oh, uh, yes. <laughs> the P-tube. Yes. I haven't required one of those yet. But... <laughs> You'll have to if you go, go all the way around the world. Indeed. Well, listen, it's great to speak to you. And uh, please spread the word about flaps for us. Will do. Thank you very much. And thank you for following us on Facebook, Steve. It's a pleasure. And our other winner is uh, a Twitter follower. It's uh, Sarah Lamb. Hello, Sarah. Hello. Well done. Thank you very much. Um, where, where do you fly? We'll ask you the same questions. Where do you fly from? <laughs> um, I'm based at Neverthorpe, which is it's up in Nottinghamshire. Oh, OK, very nice. And you're, you're a student pilot, yeah? I am, yes. Uh, how, how close are you now to, to the, the, the big scary skills test? <laughs> well, I'm on 38 hours, so not too far off. Well, we've just retired one pet PPL. You could be our replacement. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll have the same arrangement as him. No money. <laughs> just... Oh, that's, that's unfair. <laughs> well, that's what we... It's just for the love, Sarah, I'm afraid. That's all, that's all we have here to give you is love. Uh, so um, you, you, you'll read the book and you'll be really inspired because uh, he went all around the world. I mean, where, where, where's the first place that you want to go when you pass your test? Oh, well... Um... To be honest, anywhere that I'm not going to get lost on the way. You never no, lost, not... Sarah. You never lost. <laughs> Uncertain of position. You know the rules. Indeed. Anyway, listen, it's lovely to speak to you. And uh, spread the flaps of love, please. And I absolutely will. And enjoy the book. It's a cracking read. Thank you very much. So it really does pay to follow us on Twitter. We are at Flaps Podcast. And on Facebook, it's facebook.com forward slash Flaps Podcast. And it really is a great book. Manuel Kairos, Chasing the Morning Sun, all about his trip around the world. Uh, and if you want to hear the interview he did with us, uh, it's flapspodcast.com forward slash extended. It's Mason's Minute. When I think back to my dear old dad, he was an absolute pain at not putting enough fuel in his car. If he had a journey to make, and that journey needed two gallons, he would put one and a half gallons into the car and run out of fuel with a few miles to go to his destination and not understand why. My father, living in Kidderminster as he did for much of his later life, was a regular to be seen walking along country lanes, muttering and carrying a fuel can either to the filling station or back to his car that was out of gas. Now, in aviation, we all know that fuel considerations are a top priority. The fuel gauges are monitored, some may argue, way too often. But history has shown us that people have, uh, they do, and they still will, run out of fuel in aeroplanes. I recall it happened in an airliner many years ago, and that was as a result of the crew becoming totally preoccupied with an undercarriage malfunction. In fact, it wasn't even an undercarriage malfunction. It was a failed bulb. And I think they wanted three green lights. They only had two. And a simple failed filament was something that they concentrated on to the exclusion of all other checks. They ran out of fuel and crashed. Have I been close to it? Yes, I have a couple of times. I was in my boat when I made a stupid journey from the Isle of Wight to uh, the Bristol Channel and during the passage around Land's End and off Hartland Point to Swansea, I got into Swansea in a fierce storm with barely a few gallons of fuel remaining. Had I been at sea and run out of fuel, the boat would have been lost, so would I and my crew. I was absolutely disgusted with myself for not having applied the 
limits imposed in aviation. All airliners carrying passengers are required, obviously, to have sufficient fuel to reach their destination. They should also have sufficient fuel to be able to carry out a couple of approaches and go-arounds at that destination. And on top of all other considerations, with fuels to divert to other more suitable airfields, if the destination airfield for some reason becomes unavailable, you add half an hour on top of that. Might seem silly, but do we etch into it? Yes, sometimes we do. In a tornado once, I was coming back to my base at RAF Larbrook uh, on the minimum fuel, and in very broad terms, uh, minimum was not that uh, luxury accorded to airliners. We had a few minutes to be able to think what we would do if the runway suddenly became unavailable. Would you believe it, during my final approach to RAF Larbrook, I was told that the runway lights had failed in entirety and I was to divert to the airfield down the road. I did. It was Wildenrath. I was very familiar with it. And um, my initial reaction was, we'll tootle down to Wildenrath, stay the night, have a couple of beers and uh, chew the fat with some pals I haven't seen for a while. Well, just as we made our approach into Wildenrath, following an aria phantom that was about to land the phantom did what was called a bolter and he'd lost a piece of his uh, aeroplane on the runway uh, was i willing to land on a runway with a big piece of fod on it not at night i wasn't that was okay i could go to bruggen it was only barely a couple of minutes away uh, as i made my approach into bruggen a jaguar landed and burst a tire so the runway was blocked i was going to go back to larbrook it was the only place i could possibly go to uh, when I got to Larbrook, they told me that uh, I was to go back to Wildenrath, which I did. And at this stage, the anal sphincter, instead of going half a crown sixpence, uh, was doing more like dustbin lid saucer. Uh, we landed, we taxied in, and as we did so, one of my engines uh, gently wound down. It had no more fuel to supply it. You could have said that that was an occasion when everything was conspiring against me, but I'm pleased to say that there is a fuel reserve and on this particular occasion I used it and I'm doubly pleased to say that that's the only occasion I have ever got close to running out of fuel. Thanks, Pablo. That's probably about a minute. That's never a minute. Right, time for a Flaps field trip. Mark visited North Weald Airfield, which rhymes brilliantly. Uh, it's about 12 miles south of Stansted and about four miles north of Stapleford. It was a lovely Saturday afternoon. The market was taking place on the airfield and I spoke to Trevor Archer and to John Buckles. When he goes flying, does he buckles up? Uh, probably, yes. I'm so sorry. John Buckles from the Airfield Users Group. Uh, John began by telling me some of the airfield's history. Northfield was originally opened in 1916 in the First World War by the RAF and operated until the 1920s um, and then it lay fairly derelict up until the Second World War and it had a big history in the Second World War. Uh, after the Second World War the RAF operated here till the 1960s and they moved out in 1964. Uh, again the airfield lay derelict until about the 1970s when the Epping Forest District Council bought the airfield and uh, the Epping Forest District Council have owned it since uh, for about 25 years now and uh, the airfield now flourishes with general aviation and uh, a huge mixture of uh, non-aviation activities. 
now the airfield like so many others tragically is uh, constantly at risk of being uh, redeveloped as as land for other purposes housing and industrial parks things like that uh, trevor tell me what the threats have been here recently at north Weald. in the last 10 years the main threat has been that of housing and uh, it's been identified by various studies as potentially providing land for up to uh, 18,000 houses, although the most recent plan was for, I think, 6,000 houses. Other things that have been proposed for the airfield include a waste recycling or incineration plant and various other, shall we say, items that are not so desirable for the local community as well. But um, these things, uh, they come and go. We, we set up the users group really to mobilise and uh, support for the airfield uh, through other aviation tenants or people who operate at the airfield but also among the local community and people who use the airfield for leisure and a lot of supporters around the country and even overseas. Almost surprisingly for an airfield there's actually quite a lot of support from residents nearby is that right? That is and the airfield has got a as John was uh, suggesting earlier a lot of history especially from the second world war and the battle of Britain it was a sector station for 11 group and uh, has uh, quite a lot of say history in relation to that and a lot of say famous battles were fought from here it played a very important role in the defense of the UK and the locals especially identify with that it gives them something to be proud of in the local area but also they see it as an asset uh, again it's a big green open space they're quite pro-aviation relatively speaking um, because they see that uh, the other uses for this piece of land are, are for, from their point of view a lot less desirable. Yes, the, um, the airfield is effectively divided into two halves, there's the aviation side and the non-aviation side. Uh, on the non-aviation side um, there's a fairly large industrial estate um, with warehousing and uh, the old hangars are used for this. There are numerous sport activities, archery, football, model aeroplane, flying, running, cycling, uh, drag racing, uh, you name it, it goes on at Northwield all the time. Northwield is currently an unlicensed airfield. If you were to license it, would that help you at all? That is one of the options which would allow, should we say, a more uh, a different mix of aviation, including the type of flying, say, business aviation, air taxis, which could bring more income to the airfield. So the airfield as a whole makes a profit for the council, but the aviation side is restricted by the airfield being unlicensed to purely private use, which then does put limitations on the kind of income through landing fees, hangarage, this kind of thing which can be achieved. What aircraft are, are based here, John? Uh, there are 150 aeroplanes based at Northfield currently, and uh, they vary from uh, microlights. There's uh, a microlight school on the airfield, in actual fact, uh, which operate two, only two aircraft at the moment, uh, through the normal array of light general aviation uh, to one or two executive jets, uh, a few turboprops, and quite a few jet provost aircraft. In addition to that, there's a, a quite a big warbird community based on the airfield, mainly in the hands of private collectors, uh, but they do operate all through the summer, uh, almost on a daily basis sometimes, uh, doing displays at various air shows around the country and abroad. And that's part of the attraction, I think, for the locals as well, that you, know, you could be sitting in your garden on a Saturday afternoon and a Spitfire will fly past or a hurricane. And uh, yeah, that is, again, something which gets the pride going of the local community, reminds them of the airfield's past. OK, one, one final question for you. What would it mean to you 
if the airfield was forced to close? Well, it'll be a great shame because the, um, the airfield has been noted in the various reports for its historical value. Um, the value to the community is a leisure centre, a leisure and recreation centre, which is why the Epping Forest District Council bought the place in the first place. The airfield, is, in a sense, is what Northfield is about. You know, Northfield is on the map because of the airfield that's here. And uh, if it was gone, it would be like, say, say taking the airfield out of Biggin Hill or, or other places. Yeah, it would just the place wouldn't be the same. One of the roles of the Northfield Airfield Users Group is to prevent the developers doing what the Luftwaffe failed to do in 1940. Very good point. Now, John, you often man the tower here. For anybody listening to this that thinks they want to fly into the airfield, give us some basic uh, guidance while we can here now. Give us a telephone call first uh, for prior permission. Uh, I know people often frown on this, but it is absolutely essential at Northfield because of the proximity to controlled airspace. There's a transponder mandatory zone right next door to us, and the airfield may be closed or only with certain runways available on certain days. Uh, so give us a call first, and it's easier than you think. It's not far from London and controlled airspace, but it's not difficult. You're very welcoming as well here, I can vouch for that. And the big breakfasts are big and very tasty and good value at six pounds 90. Uh, John, Trevor, thanks very much and uh, nice to meet you both. Thanks for coming. Thanks a lot. Keeping a good listen out. Flaps podcast. Now, before we go, remember, remember the 12th of November. What Mark's trying to say here is that Saturday the 12th of November is file a flight plan day. Uh, the idea of this is to help prepare for the Olympic airspace restrictions and we've made another CAA airspace podcast that explains a bit more. If you've not heard it, it's on the Flaps site at flapspodcast.com forward slash airspace. But just very quickly, here's Dan Lewis from Nats with a bit more information. A lot of GA pilots don't have that much experience of filing flight plans. Uh, what we would like to see is give them an opportunity to experience the mechanism of filing the flight plan so that come the Olympics next year they won't actually be worried about what they're doing and can get on and enjoy their flying as they would normally do. Dan Lewis from Nats talking about file a flight plan day, uh, which is Saturday the 12th of November. So, of course, uh, you can file through Afpex. That's one way. Of course, there are commercial flight planning software packages available, uh, one of which who are getting involved on file a flight plan day are the guys from Sky Demon. And uh, Tim Dawson's joined us on the phone now. Hi, Tim. Hello. Um, now, it's a great bit of kit. If people haven't played with it yet, they can do. They can go to your website and have a fiddle for free, uh, Sky Demon Light. Normally, Sky Demon Light doesn't file flight plans, does it? That is correct, yeah. Uh, but for the file a flight plan day, uh, you nice people are very, very kindly turning it on, aren't you, that bit of functionality? Yeah, for the final flight plan day and also for the duration of the, the Olympics, obviously. Now, obviously, we're, we're not going to favour one system over the other, and, of course, Nats are going to go with uh, their AFPEC system. But... Um, the one thing that strikes us is, is drawing lines on a map, uh, which, of course, you can do with your system, seems a little bit simpler. Yeah, that's the, uh, the general feedback we've got. And we, uh, we thought that for the Olympics, we would add flight plan filing capabilities into Skydemon Light because Skydemon has the advantage of knowing what you plan to do already. It can automatically fill in a flight plan form for you. There's very little uh, stuff that needs to be added by the pilot. And I suppose there's less margin for error there, isn't there? Exactly, because everything is guaranteed to be output in the right format, it, it does maximise your chances of getting your plan approved. I think that, that was one of the things Nats were quite keen to get across to pilots, was you know how important it was to get it in in the right format so it wouldn't get rejected, but obviously uh, your software can do that. That's right, and there are a lot of misconceptions, um, and people don't file flight plans very often a lot of the time, so quite rightly they often get little points about them wrong. 
I think the key thing uh, for Fila Flight Plan Day is that anybody who might be flying in the southeast next year really should have a go at it just so they can be familiar and that they know everything's going to work. And it also, as well as helping the pilots get ready, helps Nats get ready as well, doesn't it? That's one of the main things they're doing this for, I think, yeah, to get an idea of the kind of plans that are going to be submitted and also the, the number of them as well. Because you guys are actually approved by NATS, aren't you? The software is, uh, is approved by um, the, the National Air Traffic Service. Yeah, NATS endorsed the functionality of the, of the Sky Demon Light uh, project. We spoke to you a few podcasts ago just after you'd launched Sky Demon Light. How has it gone since then? Has it been well received, do you think? Very well received indeed, yeah. Very well. We've got ni- lots of nice reviews uh, and um, lots of people are using it. The numbers are, are incredible, actually. And uh, you'll be able to cope if lots of people um, come onto your site on File of Flight Plan Day. You're not going to crash, are you? Well, we certainly <laughs> hope not. And that's, uh, again, one of the objectives of doing tests. Is to make sure it all works, yes, I suppose. So um, uh, if you want to get involved, it is the 12th of November. Um, and uh, it won't cost anyone a penny, will it, Tim? Just, just to be clear about this. That's right. You go to skydemonlight.com. And the product has always been free, and the only difference will be in the in the days leading up to Saturday, we'll put a little file the flight plan button on there. And clicking that, you'll just have to enter a few things, such as your aircraft information and your name and phone number. Crucially, you won't have to fill out the whole flight plan form. In fact, you won't even see a lot of it, because Skydemon will have done it all for you. And this won't cost a penny, because um, us and our, our partners, EURFPL, have got together and decided to donate all this um, AFDN filing stuff to everybody. And just to, just to, I mean, this is probably a stupid question, but one of the things when we spoke to Nats, they were keen that people get signed up for AFPEX. You, you don't need an AFPEX login, do you? Because it goes through your system. That's correct. AFPEX is a, is a gateway onto the AFTN, which everybody uses for filing flight plans. Yes. Skydemon and EURFPL are simply a different gateway. Yeah. Thought so. Thought we'd just check, Tim. Excellent. And uh, Tim, should anybody be listening to this podcast after Fire Flight Plan Day, they can use, as you've said, Sky Demon Light during the Olympics, can't they? And play about with it between now and then anyway. That's absolutely correct. Uh, well, uh, we hope it all works, and uh, thanks for coming on board with it. Thanks for having me. So that's it for another Flaps. Thank you for listening. We'll be back before Christmas, but only if you've been good boys and girls. And we'll know. Don't forget you can like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter and uh, you can also sign up for our mailing list. That's at flapspodcast.com. Or you can subscribe on iTunes. All you need to do is search for Flaps Podcast. Dead easy, that. It downloads itself. And as always, it's completely free. Thanks for listening. See you next month. It's time for us to Foxtrot Oscar. See you next month. Thanks for listening to Flaps. Flaps.